0: Tracy.
1: And I'm Sharon and I was well, just taking okay, a hot <laughs> <laughs> I was just taking a cup of tea <laughs> sip. We still are. We are Feet of Clay.
0: Confessions of the Cult Sisters. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, listeners, we wanted to give you a heads up that in this episode, we will be discussing very disturbing topics such as arranged child marriages, domestic abuse, as well as physical and sexual assault. Please use discretion when listening and take care of yourself. Confessions of the Cult Sisters. And we're so excited today because as we did last episode, we've adopted a new cult sister. We have Abigail. Say hi to everybody. Hey, everybody. <laughs> oh, so, this has been in typical confessions of the cult sister fashion. It's been The heartbreaking and the funny and the cringeworthy, and we are so grateful for Abigail opening up and sharing her story. And I think if you haven't listened yet, please go back to the first couple episodes, Uh, because there's, I think, a point in there where Sharon and I become speechless, and that doesn't happen very often.
1: No, that hardly ever, ever happens. And for those who might have just popped in on this one, Abigail was part of the cult, IBLP, Bill Gothard's Whole Empire, and it was featured in the documentary on Prime, Shiny Happy People. And if you haven't seen that, you should go check that out as well. Abigail, so when we left off our conversation, you had gone into a lot of detail sharing with us about that childhood betrothal and what was going to be this arranged marriage that came to a screeching halt through horrific abuse. And you mentioned, you know, before we started up this recording session, you mentioned that that was the first time you had ever really told that story start to finish. And I'm wondering how you're feeling now about having done that.
2: Yeah, it was. Um, I think my closest people in my life know the majority of the story but I have never told it all the way through the whole arc like that before and um it was kind of a a weird experience to say it all at once I felt for a long time it's a really important story I'm actually feeling more relief than anything else to just have it out there for people that have had similar experiences so they don't feel like they're alone or the mm-hmm. only one and also for the many, many young girls who are still in that kind of high control group arranged marriage situation.
1: Yeah. You know, what's so hard is you think about these girls and when they're 12, 14, 16, 17 years old, I mean, they are truly trapped. So our hearts may go out to them and we would love to help and rescue every one of them. But the fact is you can't. And so all we can do At this point, to help those girls currently in it and the future girls who might be put into it is we've got to get our culture and society to open their eyes and see that these aren't just harmless, quaint little, oh, isn't that nice? They're Bible-based. They're Bible-believing. What could the harm be in that? Holy shit, there's a lot of fucking harm, and uh, we got to stop closing our eyes to it.
0: Mm -hmm. Yes, and I just want to say we are honored that you have been able to tell your story from start to finish on our podcast. So thank you very much for sharing that with us.
2: Well, I'm so grateful to y'all for giving me this platform. It, it really means a lot to me.
0: All right, Abigail. Well, we left
1: off. You had been, <laughs> oh my gosh, shattered, devastated by what happened in your teenage years. And then you're out of that church and trying to make your way. Can you pick it up from there and tell us what happens next?
2: So I decided to make the very rebellious decision. You guys are going to be shocked at this rebellion <laughs> to go to Covenant College. <laughs> it's so rebellious. So rebellious. Oh. So. so so
0: I do. Ha- so I'm going to stop you there for our listeners. Uh, We did print and publish a track at Last Days Ministries, Should a Christian Go to College? And it was actually written by Sharon. She's mentioned it before in a post. And so obviously it's a rhetorical question because Christians should not go to college (laughs) Uh, because it's a waste of time and money and you should be all about going after Jesus. So tell us a little bit about Covenant College.
2: Yeah. So in the IBLP, there's a very small group of colleges that you are allowed to go to as a woman, mostly for husband hunting and um, (laughs) as a man for uh, perhaps some kind of education to fund your quiverful movement. But Covenant College was certainly not one of those colleges. So Covenant is a gorgeous, gorgeous college on the top of Lookout Mountain right outside of Chattanooga, Tennessee. And it is a a stunningly beautiful campus. And that was a solid 95% of the reason why I wanted to go there. And the other 5% is that it's a PCA Presbyterian Church of America, which is the more conservative branch of the Presbyterian Church. And it's their college. And having just left the cult I had been under the teaching of a man named Louis Giglio in Atlanta, who was all about grace and reformed theology. And I was just like really into that because I had had this devastating experience where I was dirty and ruined and had just ruined the lives of everybody. And the idea of grace was incredibly soothing to me. Mm. And so uh, Presbyterians are well known for being reformed and very conservatively Mm grace-oriented. So that that was exciting to me. It was also a college that my parents were willing to pay for and to allow me to go to, and I was still in their home. So that was a piece. Um, You were
1: still under your father's authority, basically?
2: I was. There had been a slight shift of power. I had gone to my dad several months after the courtship ended and said, listen, I I will never lie to you again. And so you have a choice. I can either tell you the truth inside of your home, or I can tell you the truth and not live in your home and it's your choice.
0: Wow. That's a pretty empowering statement for you to say that. That shows a lot of courage.
2: Yeah, I'm not really sure where I came up with it to <laughs> tell you the truth, but um, I did say it and I think I was really just so destroyed and guilt ridden that I had lied because in my mind at that time, it was still 100% my doing Yeah, and I mm-hmm. didn't ever want to do it again. Mm. And he did agree that he would rather me live in his home and tell him the truth, and so that's kind of how we proceeded from that point forward. So I uh, applied for Covenant and I got in. It's a competitive school. Everybody was very happy, and I was due to start school that fall. But before that, I ran away to Jamaica on a missions trip.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you ran away on a missions trip.
2: <laughs> I did. I just I just wanted to be as far away from all of Calvary and those people as I could possibly be. And so in my still so controlled mind at that point, that the right way to do that was, was to go be a leader on a missions trip with a boy that had previously left the cult and was in the PCA. That seemed like definitely the right thing to do. Okay. And the PCA, the PCA is... The Presbyterian Church of America. It's a a major evangelical denomination. So rebellious. So rebellious. rebellious. (laughs) It was the most rebellious. So (laughs) I ran away to Jamaica and on the missions trip to Jamaica, one of the guys that was on the trip was also starting Covenant in the fall. And I'll be really honest with y'all, didn't pay much attention to him. We were there. I knew he was going to Covenant. He was the only soul on the planet I knew that was going to Covenant, and that was about the extent of our interaction. So we start Covenant in the fall. Uh, Covenant's quite small. There were 306 people in my class, and we happened, this boy, Tim, and I happened to be in the same small group, you know, because Jesus made that happen.
1: (laughs) So these small groups, were they like fellowship groups that weren't academic? It was like the religious part of things?
2: Yeah, they were like um, freshman uh, social prayer groups. And they were co-ed? Yes, yes. Covenant is – let me tell you how rebellious Covenant is. I've got to break it down for you. (laughs) Covenant is a co-ed college where you have open dorm hours for four hours every weekend. Oh, it's very rebellious. Open <laughs> dorms, four hours every weekend. Now you have to have two feet on the floor at all times. Uh, you can do a lot with two feet on the floor. Yeah, Disney. you can. Or knees, <laughs> or knees. Do <laughs> knees count? Yes, knees, uh, they do count. I happen to know they count.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and how about condom vending machines? Any of those in the No, hallways?
2: no, there was no condom vending machines. There was a nurse. But I never asked her for condoms, so I can't really say definitively what would have happened <laughs> if I did. Okay. She was kind of a cool lady, though, so maybe. So we're we're at Covenant. We're kind of thrown together, which, of course, in my mind was all God. Mm-hmm. Where in reality, there's 306 people there. So. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but
2: you know, at, at that point, it was so interesting. When I was rereading my journals a few weeks ago after the documentary came out, the biggest thing that surprised me rereading my journals was how much the arc of this story was in fact the same arc as my courtship. Mm. I had really remembered them as two very different things and going back and reading it was probably the most devastating part of the documentary coming out and all of this was realizing that I no longer needed the IBLP to control me. I was controlling myself mm. within my own high control group. Wow. Wow. And that was a really, really hard realization to come to just a few weeks ago. It was, it was pretty devastating.
0: The conditioning had been successful.
2: Very
1: successful. Well, train up a child in the way he shall go. And when he is old, he won't depart, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Beat the shit out of you. Do mind control fuckery. And uh, yeah, you
2: become the prisoner of your own mind. Thank you. Mm. That is so factually true. I mean, it is. It's, it's, it is 100% what was happening. I remember spending the majority of my freshman year crying in theology class Hmm. because it was the first time I had heard actual theology. And I would just stay after class and just cry and cry with my professors who think God were just such kind men. And I would just cry and say, what do you mean there's more than one way to read Revelation? Mm. What do you mean grace alone? What do you mean about these things? I I was so overwhelmed to start to get real education really for the first time in my life about, about much of anything, but certainly about doctrine and theology and hermeneutics and apologetics and all of those pieces. Were you still firm in your belief in God, in Jesus? Very much so, yes. I was I was very devout. And I felt that I had found this freedom in God. I really felt that I had found this grace thing and that I was enormously free in the teachings of God and in the theology of this Reformation movement. And I just was totally 100% bought into it. Mm. And so- Tim was a was a legacy. Grandparents were missionaries, parents were missionaries, pastors, the whole thing. You said the last name and it was like the Red Seas parted. And I was like a little mutt child, right? I had no upbringing in the PCA, which they really love their history of families.
0: Mm, the family. Yeah. The motherfucking families.
1: <laughs> bloodlines, right?
2: Yes. Patriarchal bloodlines. And he was from his genealogy was Scottish, which of course is also a big thing in the PCA and just MTW missionary royalty. We began dating so quickly, y'all like, oh my God, it was so fast. By October, we were certainly going steady, like seriously dating right after this massive devastation in my life had happened right at Christmas time the year before.
0: Wow. Wow.
2: It was just so fast.
0: Did you have to let your dad know, or did he have to make any calls, or were you guys completely autonomous in being able to make these decisions yourself?
2: We were completely autonomous, which was another piece that rereading the journals now was pretty devastating, that I did it all myself.
1: Well, to be fair, let's just say this, yeah, you did it all yourself, but no, the whole mindset was already done to you.
2: Yes, you are very right. And, you know, uh, Covenant's pretty devout, so you go to chapel every day. I was a triple major in theology, community development, and sociology. He, of course, was a theology major with a minor in youth studies because he's a good boy and did what he was supposed to do and i was i was hungry in the faith i was deeply devout i was eager to learn this whole new freedom that i thought i had found in traditional evangelicalism and and i was really really into it completely into it you know i was in prayer groups and i was in bible study and i was at chapel every day and i was in all these theology classes and i was so hungry for the word and so feeling the spirit all the time. And I mean, that's really where I was. And Covenant is such, at that time, it was such a beautiful bubble that quickly became a prison. (laughs) But at the time, it was this bubble of amazingness. And it's just in the middle of the wilderness. And it's on the top of this gigantic mountain. And you could just go to the overlook and see five states and pray for hours. I mean, it was a, a magical place to be in that moment.
0: Well, and it was so much
2: freer than the IBLP. So much more freedom. I mean, it felt like I could do anything I wanted to do within the will of God. It really felt just almost drunk on freedom that was still within God's plan.
1: It was like you were born again, again.
2: Yes, very, very much so. And I was very, very happy there. We had a very pretty traditional dating relationship, really, I think, for evangelicals. It was chaste. I was very committed to my purity culture values. Even still, he was very committed to purity culture values. And we were quite successful. Now, I had amended my values with my newfound, quote unquote, freedom in Christ. That kissing was fine. Hand-holding was fine. And for me, that felt like such an enormous amount of freedom. Sure. And I was so happy with that amount of freedom. I didn't, I really was not struggling with, you know, what we called sexual sin. I, I wasn't on my radar. But what did seem to follow me to covenant was this idea that I was too sexy. Mm. And it very much followed me to covenant. I remember the resident director of my dorm calling me into his office, which is just also so gross and creepy. Because he was, you know, young. I mean, he couldn't have been. He couldn't have been twenty seven. There's no way. And calling me to his office over and over and over again, just to talk about, "Are you staying pure? I know you have a Um, serious boyfriend." You know. Oh god. And and I remember at that point I was starting to find my voice a little bit more. And I'm like kind of an asshole all the time now, but. at that time, I was really just kind of figuring that out.
3: Oh, yeah. oh.
2: I do remember looking at him across his desk and saying, unlike most of these people here, I actually do know what sex is and I'm not doing it. Oh, wow. Wow! Because I was so mad that that had followed me. it It just felt like a curse.
1: You know, I can just picture it there, Abigail. He's got you in there and he's talking to you and he's... His brain is doing this flip file thing, and he's building up his little Rolodex of images so he (laughs) can have
2: something to jerk off to. That was so it. And in hindsight, it was so clearly it. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. At the time, I was just so angry. I couldn't understand why I was still the pariah. Like, I just couldn't understand why I didn't fit in. And I thought maybe it was because, you know, I had graduated early and I'd worked full time for two years and all these other girls in the freshman dorm had come straight from high school, straight to college. And I'd been out for two years working and- You were a worldly woman. You were a worldly woman. Exactly. And I kind of had, you know, this huge experience that no one well, else yeah. had. And and then, I, but I mean, my God, I never knew that girls cried that much. <laughs> in the dorms. Oh my god. All they did was cry and they cried about everything. Everything. Oh, oh and it was exhausting and I was just like, why are they crying? <laughs> and um and so it was definitely a big adjustment for me to be in dorms. I missed my dogs. I really didn't want to go to college. I knew what I wanted to do. I was very determined on my career from a very young age. I really didn't want to go to college. I wanted to go take an internship and immediately start in animal behavior. Of course, at that time, you couldn't go get a degree in animal behavior. It's not like it is now. Mm -hmm. Apprenticeships were really the way to do it. That's really what I wanted to do. I wanted to go to California. I wanted to take an internship. And I was very frustrated because my parents would not allow it. And I was not in a position to do it anyway. Mm
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Just just out of curiosity, was there anybody in particular you wanted
2: to intern with? I did. So I was I was showing dogs full time at the time and there was a a very very famous professional handler who wanted me to take an internship with them, which is a very big deal. Yeah. But my parents did not want that, so I turned it down and then I really desperately wanted to go to Bergen University. Like, oh my heart's desire was to go to Bergen and do their service dog program.
1: Mm, mm-hmm.
2: And that's just desperately what I wanted to do. So,
1: but instead you're at covenant college with PCA and you now have this boyfriend, Tim.
2: Yeah. And we had a pretty traditional evangelical dating thing. You know, we dated, we were very serious. Everybody at Seri- at covenant is serious when they date, they call it the marriage mill on the hill. It's <laughs> it's traditional Christian college dating. So, I did not feel rushed or in a hurry at that time. But when I read back on my journals recently, I was rushed and I felt an enormous amount of pressure as I reread those entries about constantly journaling to God about showing his will and making Tim more serious about our relationship and to take it more seriously. And I was also very keenly aware that I had a skill set that Tim was lacking that was vital for ministry. What was that? I was really good at people and I was really good at business. And he was nerdy and cerebral and shy. And I in my journal entries I recognized just terrifyingly early that he needed somebody like me to be in ministry. And therefore that was God's calling for my
0: life. Mm -hmm. I can relate to that. Yeah.
1: It's your, you're still the support. You're the support Mm -hmm. for the man because the man is the
2: one Mm -hmm. who's going to carry forth God's will ultimately. Absolutely. And and I was journaling at that time about not wanting to have children and that I didn't think children were God's plan for me. There were journal entries about that in my freshman year of college. So those, those pieces of my mind were, were beginning to change and I was beginning to have some original thoughts, but the entries were still. God, take this rebellion from me, take this will that I want to do something away from me, make Mm -hmm. it only your will. There was still just everything was encased in that. So we did quite well freshman and sophomore year. And in our junior year, there was a chapel speaker that came and gave a chapel talk on if you could not take a physical fast from your boyfriend, you were sinning against God.
0: Love all these teachers with these crazy topics,
2: right? I mean, it's just straight purity culture, straight oh. typical mainstream evangelical purity culture. yeah,
0: and layer some more guilt and shame. Give you something else to struggle through as though you haven't had enough already. well, and
1: how did how did they
0: define a physical
1: fast? Zero
2: touching for thirty days, okay. So at this time leading into that, we were only holding hands and making out in a pretty chaste way. And so we did it, man. Gung-ho, we love Jesus and we don't want to be sinning against God. So we took a 30-day physical fast. And let me tell you, day 31 was a hell of a day. (laughs) (laughs) it's that scarcity thing again it's like you make something
1: taboo and off limits and all it does is create a craving and an insatiable fixation it's like human psychology 101
2: what the fuck it's insane and i can't speak for anyone's mind but my own but i'm here to tell you i was not struggling with sexual sin when we did it everything was totally fine. Like I felt no push to do more or cross a line or whatever you want to call it. I was great where we were, but man, 30 days and day 31, you just slipped right over the edge, which was just mm-hmm. heavy petting. Like we're not talking like a crazy thing. Mm-hmm. It was just heavy petting while making out. Mm-hmm. And so then that started the death spiral
1: Wait, can I ask you a question? Because this yeah. is something I try to still figure out. I, I, I kind of grilled Tracy on this before. <laughs> so did. how do you define the difference between heavy petting and light petting? I mean, what's the line?
2: <laughs> so to me, <laughs> heavy petting is anything that happens over the clothes to any expression of pleasure.
1: Okay, so you're still over the clothes. Over the clothes is the key. <laughs> okay, so what's the difference then? So what's light
2: petting? Light petting is like you're making out and like your arm is definitely grazing her boob. Okay. And you don't move it, but your hand's not on there squishing it.
0: Yeah. And you're not groping. You're not like ravenously groping. Right.
1: Correct. touching and exciting and arousing over the clothes, direct to genitals or boobs. Correct. All right. So then what happens when you actually are touching without the clothes? What's that called? Oh, I mean, I- I
0: Sin.
2: Sin. Sin. <laughs> and I would have defined that as sex. Oh. Oh, interesting.
1: Interesting.
2: Yeah, that's how I would have defined it at that time.
1: At that time. Okay. All right. See, we're old. We're old. We're still not up to, you know, we, 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 we don't keep up with the culture. Well,
0: and different groups have different definitions because I would say in a secular in the 70s, Secular, not Christian. Heavy petting would have been hands under the shirts and down the pants. Still clothed, yeah. but you're yeah. go you're penetrating the clothing.
1: Yeah. And and to orgasm,
2: perhaps. Yes, no? Yeah, so heavy petting could be to orgasm if you were that talented. <laughs> <laughs> like if you were talented enough to get to orgasm over the clothes, then that's still heavy petting. Okay. Um, Okay, then. Challenge accepted. (laughs) Exactly. So that that whole 31 days thing started the death spiral of that horrible pattern of behavior of Mm -hmm. sexual sin repentance, sexual sin repentance, sexual sin repentance, just Mm -hmm. over and over and over, like almost on a seven-day cycle. And it was just – it was exhausting. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you had to confess it. So you had to go – who who are you confessing to? I was confessing to accountability partners which are like other teenagers who are stupid. <laughs> so you confess to your accountability partner which is mostly just like your girlfriend and they're like, "We'll pray about it." Okay. And so then like you pray and you're like, "Oh Lord Jesus, please help Abby stop touching Tim's penis." <laughs> and like you just pray about it fervently and you usually cry. Yes. Yes. I don't know who the boys confessed to, but I think pretty much the same thing. Yeah. And then I think if I'm remembering correctly, we did not feel the need to confess it higher than that level at that point because it was just heavy Mm petting. But that is when it suddenly became urgent to the both of us that we probably needed to get married.
0: Yes, it's better to marry than to burn with lust.
2: Exactly, exactly (laughs) that, which was frequently preached in chapel. And it's the perfect reason to get married, the perfect reason. reason. What other reason could you possibly have to shackle your life to another human being? (laughs) So we're now in our junior year, and this is where all this culty stuff gets so weird again. I go home because I have agency now, you know, because I'm I'm reformed. So <laughs> I go home and tell my dad, this is how I remember the conversation. We are in the car. And I say, hey, Tim and I are struggling with sexual purity. And I think we need to go ahead and get married. And my dad said, how much are you struggling? And I said, well, we're not having sex. We're just struggling. Like, you know, we're just making out too much, which was true. Mm-hmm. And he goes okay, I think that's a great idea. Wow. Okay. That was it. And I was like, oh, well, okay, then. Then that's what, you know, God blessed this. This is what we're going to do. So we get engaged early junior year, and then we get married between our junior and senior year. Now, in that time of engagement, the lines get very blurry on sexual Mm -hmm. purity. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was technically a virgin when I got married, but it was like, I'm talking a hairline technicality. Okay. Wait, wait (laughs) now. So first of all, had you been using devil stick
0: tampons? Well, yeah. So I'd already, I mean, I'd already been using (laughs) the devil sticks. That was done.
2: (laughs) And you were also a horseback rider at this point or just- Right. I mean, many, many reasons why that might not be true. (laughs) Okay.
0: (laughs) Thank you for that clarification.
2: But in, in terms of penile
1: penetration, you were still technically a virgin. Correct.
2: A penis had not fully <laughs> penetrated a vagina. <laughs> just the tip. Just the tip, ma'am. And, <laughs> and of course, you could get expelled from Covenant for having sex. So this was a very risky behavior. Yeah. yeah. And, and it wasn't like, a, oh, it's on our books that you can get expelled. Like legit, they expelled people.
1: Hmm.
2: So you add in that secrecy element, and now it's like suddenly very exciting. Of course. Mm-hmm. And so we have a very large, very white, very Atlanta wedding this summer between our junior and senior year, and I was twenty-one, and he was turning twenty-one the next week.
0: Oh my gosh! You've already lived so much life. This. <laughs> In this relationship turmoil, but you're
2: so much babies. Yeah. And he was already working, you know, as a youth pastor as, as one does. While we were finishing college and we lived in this teeny teeny tiny basement apartment with no windows and we had no money. And two weeks into our marriage he hit me for the first time. <gasps> Wait. He he hit you? Yes. In the face. In the face. For the first time. And when I tell you it came out of nowhere for me, I mean, it came out of nowhere for me. Like, was there an argument? Was there a conflict? So we were disagreeing, but I would not have classified it as an argument. There was no shouting. There was, we were driving in the car. I was driving. We were having a disagreement about, uh, actually about the car and- whether we should sell that one and buy a cheaper one. It was just a typical discussion about what should happen next. And we disagreed on what should happen, but it, it didn't register to me as a fight. It was a disagreement. It didn't feel like a fight. We weren't yelling. I wasn't upset and I was driving. And like, then my face was hot. Like it was, it was so surreal. Was
1: So with an open hand?
2: No, closed fist on the oh face and gosh. on the shoulder. So more than one punch. Yeah, two.
0: And it was to get you to be quiet? He didn't like what you were saying?
2: I, I, I don't know. It, I, I dumped him on the side of the road because at that point I was, again, starting to have my own thoughts and opinions and feelings. And so I stopped the car and pulled him on the side of the road. and I said, get the hell out. I may have said, get the fuck out. That's probably true and i drove immediately down the mountain to our pastor's house. Mm. I walked in the uh, knocked on the door walked in the door who who also happened to be his cousin. Important. Oh, wow. But i will say this because i'm going to tell all the ugly things so i think it's important to tell all the good things too. It was handled so beautifully in that moment. I walked in the house. He and his wife were there. I'm sobbing. I have a huge whelp on my face. And she immediately just gathers me up. The pastor is livid. I mean, livid angry and immediately assurance, none of this is your fault. There is no excuse. It does not matter why it happened.
0: Oh, good.
2: And that does deserve to be told because Mm -hmm. there's a lot of pieces of this story that that aren't so lovely, but that was lovely.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: And immediately uh, the pastor left to go find him and did. And I do remember getting counseled that one day, that one time by the pastor's wife that I could leave. And she did say that. And she said, you have biblical cause to leave if you want to. Hmm but i had just had a massive black tie wedding in atlanta with every person i had ever met in my whole life mm. and and i i wasn't going to it was yeah. unthinkable i couldn't imagine even telling my parents the whole thing just seemed impossible
1: yeah the social constraint was what kept you absolutely frozen in that
2: yes And so the agreement was made that we would immediately start counseling. Now, I do want to say that we did a full year of premarital counseling with the church, but it was 100% about staying sexually pure until our marriage. So like nothing helpful was done there.
0: Right. Isn't that so frustrating? (laughs) That is just, that's so frustrating as I hear these stories because I know it's similar to mine. There's no helpful counseling whatsoever it's the whole focus is on this ridiculous sexual purity leading up to it and then once that's over you're left with this bucket of crap in
2: everybody's lives it's uh. and and realistically any human being could have looked at us and our family of origin and said this is going to be a huge mistake mm. yeah any person could have seen that Well,
1: and did you have any indication during your dating and during your engagement of any sort of anger or tendency towards violence or anything like that?
2: He was quite a avid sports watcher and would yell and scream at the TV. But outside of that, nothing. Okay. In my journals, there are some notations about significant bouts of depression with him. Mm -hmm. But outside of that, no. And so I really was very stunned and we dated, you know, a long time. So the agreement was made that we go to post counseling and that we would tell his parents and that we would not tell my parents because I did not want to ruin his ministry and he was in repentance. Okay. And that's what was counseled. And so that's what I did. And so we told his parents, and I'll never forget this conversation His mom said to me pretty much that God is going to create something beautiful out of this story, and it will be a story of redemption and grace and hope. And that's mostly what everybody said outside of that very first counseling in that first day.
1: Did you tell any
2: other friends? I told one friend because this is where I can start to see myself Happening in these times, I took pictures of the injuries and I emailed them to a trusted friend of mine and I said, "I need you to keep these Wow. And it's where I can see little glimmers mm-hmm. of my present self starting to appear
0: well, and you're also just at the physical age where
2: that starts to happen you're you're becoming a woman. Yeah, I mean, early twenties. That's I mean, I was twenty one. That's that's about right. Yes, and it was about this kind of same time. We went to counseling, and and we were working through things, and it was just so much work. There was also a lot of sexual dysfunction in the marriage because purity culture does that to children. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> there was erectile dysfunction. There was completely. Mismatched signals and scheduling. I wanted to have sex much more than he did. When we would have sex, it was, we didn't know what the hell we were doing and it was not good. And it was just, it was just a disaster. We discovered he had a latex allergy, which is a hilarious story for another day. And, and so this is all kind of, you know, we're brand new married with this huge curveball of this incident of violence. And I do remember we were seeing a Christian therapist who was rather good, not great, but comparatively quite good. And I do remember expressing in a couple's counseling that I felt really robbed, that I felt like he had robbed me of my newlywed moment. And so we did talk about some important things in that postmarital counseling. I went to postmarital counseling every week for eight years.
0: Wait, every. Every week wow!
2: for eight years while you were married? Yes. Did he go with you? In the beginning, yes. Often not later. If my memory serves, there were five or six therapists altogether. So we are now in our second semester senior year. He's applying for positions at churches within the PCA. I am sitting in my 300-level theology class. And I signed up for the class on accident. I thought the class was ancient cultures of the Middle East, which is like right up my alley, like super fun anthropology. Let's do this. Unfortunately, the class was ancient texts and cultures of the Middle East, which was very sad for me. (laughs) But we're translating the Epic of Gilgamesh against the flood story in this class. And I'll never forget this kid was sitting next to me who I'd been in class with, you know, all four years. And we're translating the Epic of Gilgamesh and I'm like three quarters of the way through and I'm sitting at my desk and I just went, oh no. And he looks at me, he goes, what? And I said, oh, this is all bullshit.
3: Oh my gosh. (laughs) And he
2: goes, oh yeah. (laughs) And like, that was the moment when I really started to think that maybe... I had made a huge mistake about my faith hmm. and what I believed. Because I was struggling with other things about faith and God's promises and those things. But I was <laughs> how how can there be two flood stories with two different gods that are exactly the same? Hmm. I just I was just pretty devastated, but at that point I was married to a pastor. Mm. And so we took our post shortly after graduation. Uh, He hit me again when we got here. He hit you again. Yeah, that was, he only hit me twice the very first time. And then about a year later, Uh I did drop him that second time though.
1: What do you mean you dropped him?
2: (laughs) I need him really hard in the balls and he dropped. Oh. (laughs) And he did never do it again. (laughs) single event learning
1: folks yeah. you can understand the quadrants of positive punishment <laughs> exactly
2: and and while he was had episodes of violence breaking furniture windows things like that he he never hit me again after that hmm. and i stayed and the leadership of the church knew because i told them and i told them many times And we were referred to counseling, and we went, or I went, and he sometimes went. And the church then pressured us very much to purchase a house. And as I think is very common in all evangelicalism, he was making so little, like below poverty wages. Yeah, I was working two jobs. They wanted us to have a house near the church, which was in a very wealthy part of town.
1: Well, let me, I just want to say something. You guys were making very little There are some that make a shit ton of money.
2: Oh, yeah, for sure. (laughs) The
1: high-level pastors, for sure. Absolutely. Fleece the flock, man. Fleece the flock.
2: And youth pastors are a two-for-one deal. Yeah, yeah. The wife works for free. Absolutely. So I was working two jobs full-time because we had to buy this house near the church that we certainly couldn't afford. This was in 2008, right at the beginning of the Great Recession. Oh,
0: yeah. Were they willing to help you out? Like, how does a church try to tell you where to buy a house?
2: Uh, That's such a good question. (laughs) I wanted to buy a house further out of town because I'm pretty decent at real estate, and I felt like that would be the best investment house, which turns out sure as hell would have been. But it was too far from the church, and the senior pastor pretty much said, you can't do that. Mm. So we purchased, we overpurchased a house and it was a very modest house. It was just in an area of town that we couldn't afford. And six months after we purchased the house, they fired him with no notice. Mm. And so then we were in some financial trouble and I was working like crazy. And I was also struggling more and more with my faith with what did I believe it, it became completely impossible for me to make the sin of homosexuality work in my heart and mind. I, I couldn't do it. Why that particular thing for you? So I had grown up showing dogs, which has a pretty diverse present, particularly in the queer community. And I was very much loved by gay and lesbian people. And I loved them. And I'd struggled with that all through my teen and early adulthood years. How could that be a sin? It just, I couldn't make it work. They were the best people to me consistently in my life. And the older I got, the more impossible it got to justify that they were allowed to be gay, but had to be celibate. It just didn't work in my mm. head anymore. Mm-hmm. And I became increasingly combative at church in our Sunday schools and small groups saying, I can't bring my gay friends here. There's a problem with this theology if I can't bring them here.
1: (laughs) I bet you they loved you, man, at church. (laughs) Yeah, I was the worst pastor's wife ever,
0: ever. (laughs) Oh, that's so awesome.
2: (laughs) An elder's kid used the N word in passing. (laughs) And I strung him up and drug him to his daddy in the middle of the church and made him say what he said. And I looked at his dad and said, he sure as hell didn't learn that here. (laughs) And I walked out. I was the worst pastor's wife ever. I I took a girl to Planned Parenthood, just the worst, (laughs) worst pastor's wife ever. And, um, And then, of course, we didn't have children, which was a huge problem.
1: Now, was he in agreement that he didn't want
2: children? It was an agreement that we had made before we got married. But... I don't believe it's something – well, it clearly isn't something he would have chosen for himself.
1: Okay. So he had some conflict, inner conflict with that.
2: Yeah. And I was just very determined that I was not going to have children.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the pressure, I mean, the cultural pressure of church
2: is family, The family. So – Yeah. And, and, you know, it was like, I was working so many hours and if I had to work on a Sunday, it was like, you got punished for it. I'm like, maybe you should pay him more.
0: Oh, did you say that?
2: I did. I did say that. Good job. And I was really bad at being a pastor's wife. I really was. Um,
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm laughing because I can imagine. And I guess all of us would be, thank God there's a voice that's thinking. Thank God there's some logic coming in. Thank God these are being challenged.
2: And we had friends in the church that were dear friends and, and those things were true, but I was very career oriented and, and I was really starting to build my career and it was getting more and more complicated to balance my views on the world with where I was in the church. It just Mm -hmm. got much, much more complicated And I found myself wanting to spend time with my unchurched friends more than I wanted to spend time with my churched friends because they were nicer. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And throughout this process, the violence was still happening in the home, just not physically towards me, but breaking windows and tables and things like that. And Of course, always deep repentance afterwards. And it was just getting more and more untenable. Then he got fired and began working in the secular sphere, which, of course, put more pressure on things.
0: And was your church leadership learning that there was violence at home or was there something else going on that caused that?
2: They already knew about the violence at home. so that And we had stopped talking about it because it wasn't changing. So I was like, meh. So we hadn't talked about it for quite some time and certainly no one asked about it. It was mostly just kind of a, we've decided to go a different direction.
3: Hmm.
2: He was not a like a sexy, fun youth pastor.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: He was very cerebral, very thoughtful, very well educated, really wanted to teach the kids theology.
0: Yeah, not usually what they want to hear.
2: <laughs> yeah. And I think they were certainly looking for a more traditional, let's go eat pizza and play basketball and pretend it's about Jesus kind of a youth pastor. Right. I think that was probably just an honest break of difference in how to do those things in that time. And he was also very, very young. And the pastor that had hired us on as the assistant pastor had left very quickly after we got hired within three or four months, I believe. And he had almost no support. And in complete fairness, he was swimming alone as a very, very young clergyman with such little support. And such little guidance on what to do and how to manage being in leadership at 22 years old. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a really unfair situation to him. It really unfair. And so, of course, losing a position in the ministry was devastating on so many levels, from an extended family perspective to his own views on what his career was going to look like, to the fact that it put additional strain on our marriage, which. He had had long bouts of depression throughout the marriage, but they got much, much worse. And it was so deeply tied to my origins in purity culture and IBLP. And that's so important. Finally, after seven years of being married, I said, well, let's, let's do one last hurrah at a marriage counselor. But this time I want to see like an actual PhD mm. that is secular. Mm-hmm. And he agreed, and we we went to one session, and not halfway through the session, the psychiatrist stopped and looked at me, and he goes, what the hell are you still doing here? Wow. And I pushed the button for the elevator, and I called a divorce lawyer that day.
0: Wow.
2: I just needed somebody to give me permission.
0: And he said that in front of your husband at the time? Yeah, he did.
2: I have a lot of big feelings about my first marriage. I was certainly in absolutely no way, shape or form should have been entering into a marriage. Mm -hmm. Absolutely shouldn't have. I brought so much baggage and so much unpreparedness to that relationship. And I had no idea who I was or who I even wanted to be. In the same way, he brought many things in too. And I know he loved me. I certainly loved him. It was a terrible match. Someone in premarital counseling should have been like, what a bad idea this is. Right? And yes, he was violent. But the real sin in that was the fact that no one did anything about it. That there was no wise counsel. That there was no no talk about what to actually do other than trust God to make it a beautiful story and don't damage the ministry.
1: Yes. I mean that is that is the answer that we get out of fundamentalist circles, evangelical circles, charismatic Christian circles everything you need is in the bible mm-hmm. and you dared not go to a secular counselor what are you talking about they're you know they're going to have the devil's words for you yeah and it's just so ridiculous and intellectually lazy and ineffective obviously so ineffective and ah uh, it's just it's part of the conditioning
2: and that was mainstream evangelicalism. The PCA yep. is a huge evangelical branch, and this was within prominent PCA. And yes, towards the end of the marriage, there was infidelity on his part, but I don't want to... It's not really even important to why we divorced. Right. At that point, that was an aside that existed, but it it's not the reason.
1: So when you got into the elevator and you push the button and the, well, the counselor had said, why are you still here? Was your husband in agreement that it was time for a divorce?
2: I think at that point he was so defeated. Mm. He would have agreed to whatever I said I wanted to do, which is, which is, I believe what happened. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't just defeated in the marriage. He was so defeated in life in just life. And I do remember asking him, he had filed for divorce. I told him that that's what we were going to do. And I remember sitting on the couch with him and I said, "We, what are you going to do? And I just remember him saying, I think I'm just going to become a hermit. Oh, wow. And it was heartbreaking. Yeah. And I think it it does an injustice to tell that story and not tell his, he was broken too. Yeah. And evangelicalism did that to us. The clergy did that to us. The Church, as a whole, did that to us, yeah and and that's so important,
0: yeah, so I appreciate so much what you're saying about you know where your husband had come to, I can so relate to that, and I look at these two young people and you're not given any keys to really unearth what it is that's driving this violence or this depression in his life. And it's just that band-aid of you need to pray more. My heart broke also for my husband that I was going to be leaving because we were two broken people that weren't getting fixed and we were just making it hard for each other. So really appreciate your compassion. I can hear that in your voice. And that's that's a hard place to come to.
2: Yeah, I think... My goal anytime I talk about that part of my life in the PCA, which I talk about more frequently in the past than I have about the IBLP is the villain in this story is is not the two kids that came into this relationship having no skills and no education and no really meaningful way of how to grow up together. The villain in the story is the people that told you all you needed to do was to just pray about it.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, because what that does as well is it really puts all the failure back on your shoulders because you must not be praying hard enough or in the right way. You must not have the right kind of faith because we know God is able and we know God is willing. So if it's not getting fixed, it's because of something wrong with you, some sin, some stubbornness, Mm -hmm. some defect. And you look at it that way and it's pretty hopeless.
2: Yeah. And that you are unwilling to let God play a redemption story for you and that it is somehow selfish to the kingdom to not live in misery for your whole life, (laughs) to show something about the kingdom of God. That's insane. That's right. Pick up your cross
1: Follow Jesus, die daily in this relationship. That's your cross
2: to bear. It's
1: like, holy mm-hmm. fuck, what, what?
2: And it, it was so presented to me that way is mm-hmm. that? Is that, oh, this abuse in your marriage is just like Paul's thorn in his flesh. Oh, God. Like, that's insane that's- when you really think about it. That's nuts.
0: <laughs> it yes. is,
2: especially that this is
0: supposed to be the haven that people go to get healed And all they do uh, is get heaped upon.
1: Yeah. And what about the comparison? You know, it's like the husband and wife relationship is supposed to be like God and us, Jesus and the bride of Christ. It's like you're saying it's okay for Jesus to smack the shit out of us. I guess that's (laughs) what you're saying. I
2: mean, that is sort of kind of what they're saying, though. (laughs) Yeah,
1: it is. Yeah, it is. It is. So how did you you make this decision, you're going to go file for divorce. And then practically speaking, what happens
2: next? The church rallied around, of course, the man. So they were not at all interested in helping me, but they were very interested in in helping him and making sure that he got where he needed to go safely. But you know, who helped me is I had In the year prior, just carved out this little nook for myself in the LGBTQ community here where we live. And you know, those people showed up and mowed my lawn and took my trash out and sat Mm -hmm. with me when I was Mm -hmm. just pretty sure I was going to die. And you know, you know, the thing that was so wild to me about that time is you know, you're taught your whole life in evangelicalism and in the faith, you know, be the hands and feet of Christ, be the hands and feet of Christ. Mm-hmm. That's who was the hands and feet of Christ to me. Mm-hmm. People who were Christian and pagan and atheist, all queer, and I didn't know how to start a lawnmower. I didn't know how to register my car. I didn't know how to change a tire and they just they just came and sat with me i was terrified to live alone i'd never lived alone i was having horrible ptsd nightmares just daily they were mm. so brutal and i was not sleeping and these people would come and sleep with me and stay with mm. me and cook for me and i mean just <laughs> you've just never seen love until you've seen two queens mowing your lawn because we <laughs> love you. Like, that is some love, y'all. That is that some love. Is love. Gosh, and shout
0: out to the queer community. And, you know, that's one thing Sharon and I also share with you, our fellow cult sister, is, you know, we were both involved in drama and had these relationships. And that was sort of the juxtaposition that we were seeing. These are some of the most open-hearted, caring compassionate people we have linked with this doesn't make sense and they're going to burn in the yes. lake of
1: fire so
0: crazy and just i mean i'm getting tears in my eyes just thinking of you in that state of just devastation and they are the ones that come and wrap their arms around you that is
2: wonderful. absolutely and and you know especially for a child coming from mm. so much grooming and so much purity culture. At that time in my life, gay men were a solace that that could be found nowhere else. They provided
3: oh, mm-hmm.
2: safety. And also I still was in deep need of maleness to tell me what to do. Mm, right. To have these men come in and, you know, I'd be like, what should I do? And they would just sit with me and say, Well, what do you want to do? and just be so patient. I'm not sure I could have come out of all of this without that very particular dynamic because I I needed men, right? Because I was terrified to make a decision. Right. But I also needed safety because I was terrified of being alone in a world where I had been taught my whole life pretty much everybody wanted to rape me.
1: Right. Oh. What a beautiful bridge. What a beautiful, beautiful bridge, bridge they
2: were for you. I don't think I would have survived. I really don't without them. And I certainly would not have thrived without them.
0: mm So I also just want to say, and I know there's a lot of memes out there and a lot of posting and just the sentence that the drag queens and the queer community are grooming our kids. And I know people (laughs) are out there saying, hey, look, your kids are being groomed, but it's not by this community. It's by the religious community and the fundamentalist community. And this is one of those stories that, you know, how many times throughout each of these past couple episodes have we called out the grooming that is taking place? Yeah. Um, in the IBLP, in the fundamentalist community, to prepare us for being victims, to prepare us for just being abused. And I, I, I'm so happy that you punctuate that story yeah. that way, because it is a beautiful bridge. And oh, we want to magnify yeah. that. We want to magnify that message as much as possible.
1: <laughs> it is. It's the heterosexual, horny men who have suppressed themselves. Those are the ones that are the predators those are the ones that are grooming and using and abusing that's where it is that's where the problem is folks
2: and yeah. and there's a reason that those are the ones that are yelling the loudest about anyone and everyone else who could possibly be a predator they're just trying to divert attention away from themselves
1: oh man that is so true that is so true Now, where were you in your belief at that point about the Bible, about God, Jesus?
2: So I was not going to church at all.
1: Kind of hard when your husband's a youth pastor. Oh, well, no, he had been fired. Yeah, he had been fired. So
2: (laughs) I wasn't sure at all what I believed. I thought maybe there might be a God. Maybe there might have been Jesus. But it was at that point, We're talking about two completely different sects of Christianity had fucked me over so Mm -hmm. hard. Mm -hmm. I had no idea who to even go to or believe or trust. And so I got pretty comfortable with the help of a secular therapist Mm -hmm. with saying, I don't know, and I don't care to know right now. And I lived there for a really long time. How did that feel for you? It felt very strange to not have a guidebook. It felt very strange to have only rules that were because you wanted to be a good person and make the world a good place, but not for any other reason. It it felt very, very strange. Scary? I think at that point, I just wanted nothing to do with it. So it was much less scary to not do it than it would have been to go back to church. That was the ultimate scary. Mm. Mm-hmm. And at that point, my PTSD had gotten so, so bad that I couldn't listen to worship music without having massive panic attacks. I really had a hard time. I had a friend that died in that time period, and I had to go to the funeral. And I almost didn't make it through the funeral because it was in a church building. I mean, I was really, really suffering. mm and it took a lot of therapy to figure out what that needed to look like. And I really was much more comfortable being okay with not knowing than making a definitive statement that I was an atheist.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: That felt very scary. Mm-hmm. To have said I was an atheist was the most scary. And i still don't typically say I'm an atheist. I'm really not i'm I'm not really sure what I believe, and I again, I, I don't really care to know what I believe,
1: right. You know, there's a freedom with accepting and actually embracing the concept that the unknowable is just that. It's mm-hmm. unknowable. And when you realize, or at least when I realize that that is the state of the universe it's suddenly,
2: wow, we're all in this state and it's okay. Yeah, I found that to be really kind of beautiful. And I found yeah. eventually, not not immediately, but eventually I found a lot of comfort in that. Yeah. That it is unknowable and that's, that's kind of lovely. It is.
1: All, all right, Abigail. So you've got your therapist that's really helped you. And the final one who said, why are you still there? You have your friends in the gay community that have come alongside you with arms to support you and hearts to love you. So what else was involved in you making this transition out
2: in a way? I think, you know, the word deconstruction gets used so much now, just in the last several years, but I do think it's a really accurate word because It is laborious to unbuild something. Mm. And it took me years and it came in stages and fits and bursts. And I struggled very, very deeply with complex PTSD and horrible night terrors. And they got much worse after my divorce. I would have memory nightmares of my days back in the IBLP and in the cult that I couldn't quite sort out. And I had a lot of repressed memories that took many years with with specialists to work on getting those memories back and figuring out where my trauma really was. It took many years. And then here I was in the world trying to figure out what dating should look like because I'd really never done that thing before. Right. (laughs) And that was, I like to call it my sexual renaissance. (laughs) all right. (laughs) And I did, I, I've had several therapists over the years, some with uh, specialties like the dream disorder specialist. I've had specialists that worked on trauma. I've had specialists that worked on other things. I've had a cognitive behavioral therapist. I'm really a big believer that therapy in a wide variety of therapy is really valuable. Mm -hmm. I had a therapist that worked specifically with me during that time period. So I could figure out what my own rules were about dating and consent and sex. And what did I actually want? Mm. And I was really grateful for that person. I had her for probably about a year where I met with her and I tell her what dates I had and, you know, what did I want to do? And then it got to the point that I was having sex and, and like, I hadn't like y'all, I mean, missionary was missionary. That's what you did. Mhm. <laughs> and so, yep. There was things that I wanted to try and explore and did I like it and did I not like it, but I was still really lacking the language to say what I wanted or what I liked or what was interesting to me or what I was curious about or what was and was not taboo. I mean, those were things that took Such a long time to pick apart and pull into little pieces and figure out what that really looked like. And then there's that whole concept like you can, in fact, just have sex for fun.
1: Right. Right. Pow! Blow your mind. That is even possible without ripping your soul
2: all to hell. Lightning didn't strike me or anything. (laughs) But that was... It took a long time to figure that out. And then I have worked for many years on this super fun disorder where I have panic attacks when I climax, the most fun. Wow. Hmm. I'm talking years of work, years of work. And it is worse when I am emotionally intimate with somebody, which means that when I met my now husband, that was a huge, huge factor that took years to work through that if I was emotionally intimate with somebody, sexual climax would send me into a massive panic attack tailspin.
0: Wow. Wow. And I think if you're open to it, we would love to be able to do another episode where we get to dive into uh, just all of these tentacles of this conditioning that we've been talking about through these past episodes, and how that impacts us in such deep, deep ways—that is, that is definitely uh, powerful. And I, as you're talking, it's like the work you have done, the work yes. you have done to explore all this and uncover it all is. I'm just in awe of it. I just want to applaud you and just say that I, I'm 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 pretty like I'm blah blah blah. I'm <laughs> speechless because that is <laughs> I just am in awe of how much work that you've had to do to what you say dismantle this system. And it's not just a theological system. I mean it it reaches into the the trauma that our body stores on mm-hmm. such you know deep levels. Wow.
2: I don't know if Sharon feels this way, but being a behavior nerd has been so protective and also so helpful. Yes. My career as an animal behavior nerd made this dissection not always fun, but always interesting. I was always curious, why did this happen? Mm -hmm. Why do I feel this way? can I relearn that, unlearn that, retrain my brain? That was at least always Mm. fascinating for me, which I think was a huge factor here.
1: Absolutely. I mean, when we can look and see and understand the dynamic of a conditioned emotional response in an animal that can send them into fight or flight, the panic mode. And sometimes we have the history and we know what happened and sometimes we don't. But Either way, being able to understand the mechanisms by which those things, those neurons fire in the brain and set up this cascade, a trauma cascade, an out-of-control emotional panic response, these are things that we can look at the animals and give them so much grace because there's there's no sin and evil intent. There's none Mm -hmm. of that shit going on. And yet you see the distress. And you see how it's been caused by circumstances outside of their control, and we can see that there is a path to healing. Mm-hmm. And it's no different for us as humans. What really fucks us over, it's this belief system that imposed upon you, Abigail, these concepts of umbrellas of protection and levels of authority And the need for total purity of heart and body, that's what warped and twisted you from the inside out. Mm -hmm. And it's so unnatural. It's so apart from who we are as human beings, as members of this planet. Yeah. And I totally agree. Understanding behavioral science, working with animals has been hugely healing for me as well. Mm -hmm.
2: And it's not all rainbows and butterflies. I don't ever want to give that impression. There are things that I am still so angry about. I am so angry that my first husband is still in the clergy, and I have never Mm. received an apology. That makes me super angry. I am so angry that this happened and still exists, and especially the people in my generation who stayed in on purpose. Mm-hmm. I am angry about a lot of things. I am angry that my marriage now takes more work than the average marriage for reasons that are very hard to understand, and that my husband's has had to do an enormous amount of learning on trauma and trauma responses and Mm -hmm. living with somebody who is never going to be all the way, quote unquote, normal. Mm -hmm. And yeah, there are definitely things that still make me angry, but I am very, very hopeful. Things like the documentary make me very hopeful. Podcasts like this one make me very hopeful. The Exvangelical evangelical and fundy TikTok people make me very, very hopeful.
1: That's great.
0: Yeah. And you have, I will just tell you from the outside looking in, your speech and your stories are peppered with all that learning that you have done in behavior work because I too have the anger, but I think we have learned how to channel it in, in ways that are healthy because you have A lot of compassion coming from you as well, a lot of understanding. And just even to be able to have that hope and to have that voice to help other people get those keys is, you know, says so much about your character and your healing and the work that you've done. And it really is beautiful. I find you to be a very beautiful person.
1: (laughs) Can I say amen? I will say amen. You can say, you
2: can say amen. You have to deflect that praise. What do you mean? So did you guys not learn that in your fundiness, where like somebody compliments you you have to be like, oh, it's all God. Oh, yes, yes, yes. You have have to say (laughs) something
0: self-deprecating like, well, it's all Jesus. A hundred percent.
1: You know what, Abigail? (laughs) None of us gets where we get without the help of others and sometimes the hindrance of others. But in the (laughs) end, girl, you are the one who's done this work. You
2: are the one who's done this work. That's, that is true and still feels wildly uncomfortable. <laughs>
0: <gasps> yes. So I have to say, we got a message. I it was on Instagram and somebody, I guess, had heard one of our stories and they said, I hope that, you know, you're feeling all the love that you can feel t- today and that you know that you're so worthy of it. And even now, years, years, years later, I thought, worthy of it?
2: I mean, I don't know that I'm worthy of it. It'll get you just a little even now where you're like, hmm.
1: Yeah, maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm not. Oh, my gosh. Well, Abigail, you mentioned the documentary. So I'm thinking as we wrap things up here, I'm curious if there was anything from the documentary in particular that you learned new or something different, a different perspective or something you hadn't uh, expected, any anything like that? I
2: watched the documentary twice and I felt differently both times I watched it. You know, the first time the whole thing felt so surreal, I think is the word that they used in the documentary. And it's, it's a good word Mm. because we had been hearing that this documentary was happening for several years. And to then finally see it, the best way I can describe it is it, it felt like you'd been screaming into a void for a really long time. And then somebody just handed you a megaphone. Mm. Wow. Yeah. And you were like, oh my God, the whole world knows now. And yes, there are things, of course, I think always with something so complicated as a cult where you're like, oh, I wish they'd talk more about that or this or whatever. But truthfully, I thought it was so amazingly well done Mm -hmm. and so digestible for the average person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was really pleased about that. As far as what shocked me content-wise the spanking video with the little boy was just by far the hardest part watching it the first time because it it was it triggered memories and and I think the first time I realized and many people I've spoken to realized that that was organized instruction. Mm. So that was hard. And then I was very grateful, but I was surprised at the detail they went into about the content of Josh Juggers' child sexual assault material. Mm. I was very grateful they did it. I think it's a deeply important part of an even bigger story than what they talked about. But I was surprised when I saw it. I, I already knew that content, but many people did not. Yeah. And I thought that was really, really valuable. When I watched it the second time... That's really when the people that I am friends with or that I've been following on TikTok for so long that are being interviewed in this documentary, I cried for them. Mm. And that was, it was just different the second time. I was so grateful to them that that they did this. And many of them have families that are still deeply in Mm. and their whole life structure changed because of their bravery. Yes. And I was just really overwhelmed with gratitude that they were willing to do that because it's a really big deal.
1: It is a huge deal. A huge deal. Yeah.
0: That's where I posted on Instagram the montage at the end, which I thought was beautiful.
2: That was one of my favorite parts.
0: I mean, I cried at different points, but that's where I broke down the first time, just seeing all of these beautiful young faces and their stories coming up and telling their stories. And I thought it was a beautiful ending. And I wanted to wrap my arms around everyone and go, thank you. Thank you for your bravery. Thank you for not breaking to the point of being here. You're still here and you're still telling your story and you're taking back your life and you're taking back your voice. And you're one of them, Abigail.
2: It's been so amazing, you know, post documentary. The TikToks of the people, of course, that were on it went crazy, but not just theirs. Like I posted right after the documentary, I had 136 followers, and as of right now, I think I have 16,000. Oh, wow. In a week, I have one video that has a half a million views. Wow. People care about these stories mm-hmm. and I'm sure that people realize how valuable that is to me and to those of us that did this. The fact that you're listening and engaging and asking questions like we have felt really unheard for a really long time. Mm. And just seeing engagement on social media and TikTok that people are searching to learn more about it is is just kind of amazing and, and makes a lot of all of this feel like it might be worth it.
1: Yeah. Validating and part of the healing. Yeah. And also, Tracy, you know, we were just talking about <laughs> talking about how we're old and we're not on TikTok. Holy shit. I guess we're going to have to do it, right, Tracy? I mean, <laughs> not like I don't want to do anything on TikTok,
2: but I guess I got to download it so I can watch your stuff, Abigail. <laughs> you got to at least stalk the people on TikTok. And I do mostly <laughs> lurking on TikTok. I'll make some videos every now and then. But um, uh, yeah, the TikTok is, is the best lurking for all kinds of fascinating content. Okay, very good. Well, this
1: has been wonderful. And again, I am so thankful. We are so thankful for your bravery. As we kind of draw to a close, is there anything else that you, I sound like somebody at the end of a church service, right?
2: Is there anything (laughs) on your heart you'd like to share, Abigail? Every eye closed and every head. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (sighs) No, I just am so grateful for you guys for platforming voices like mine and other voices. I think this is so incredibly valuable to the people who have done it. But I also hope it's really valuable to the people who are on the fringes or just evangelicals or not any church at all. I I think there are things that are yet to be said about this, about how this fits into American culture and Mm -hmm. politics that are going to be hugely helpful and valuable. And I'm just so grateful to y'all for making this platform and caring so much about these stories and these voices.
1: Well, it's a privilege and thank you, Abigail. You want to tell folks one more time how
2: they can find your work? Yeah, so they can find more of my discussions about leaving fundamentalism and evangelicalism on my TikTok, which is called Unicorn Habitat. And they can find me for my nonprofit work with service dogs at theroverchasefoundation.org.
1: Very good. And we'll put links to that in our show notes. Thank you again, Abigail. Thank you so much for having me. All right, Tracy, you send this thing off, okay?
0: (laughs) If you haven't listened to the first two episodes of Abigail's story, we do have all the links in our show notes, so you can click into those. And uh, if you like us, please rate us. If you want to leave a review, that would be great. That helps get us up into the ratings so that other people can hear these very, very important stories. And tell us, Sharon, how they can find us on Instagram.
1: Instagram, sisters Got it?
0: Wow. Abrupt. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. And we'll see you next time.